Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, mental illness, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. The sky was black and the bed was cold when Barbara Woodward awoke on Labor Day morning, 2012. Even in her groggy state, she could immediately tell something was wrong. She heard distant screaming through the walls, and as her eyes focused, she saw red and blue shadows flash against the blinds. She jumped out of bed and went to check on her children. Thankfully, they were both sleeping soundly in their beds. But her husband, 43-year-old Billy Woodward, was nowhere to be found. She rushed to the front door and threw it open to find her quiet street had transformed into a war zone. Patrol cars clogged their driveway and an ambulance was parked across the street. Barbara could now tell the screams were coming from her neighbor, Kim Silsbury. Her stomach dropped. It had finally happened. The petty feud had officially gone too far. Barbara's eyes filled with tears as she glanced around, desperately searching for her husband. Billy had to be okay. He was a soldier. He couldn't leave them behind. An officer approached to talk, but Barbara's gaze was elsewhere. There, in the half-light, she saw the silhouette of a man being led away in handcuffs. In that instant, she realized she'd just slept through a massacre. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we covered the snowballing conflict between Billy Woodward and his neighbors, Gary Hembry, Roger Picor, and Tim Blake. After a misunderstanding over a birthday present, a quiet Florida street was thrown into chaos, with both sides pushing the other to their limits. This week, we'll talk about the night Billy Woodward crossed the line on Labor Day weekend 2012. We'll discuss the tragic consequences the complicated quest for justice, and the sensational trial that followed. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. 
with more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from 50 to $500. Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Thirty-nine-year-old Gary Hembry was in a boisterous mood on the night of September 2nd, 2012. He celebrated the three-day weekend by throwing a big barbecue at his home in Titusville, Florida. The beers came out, the grill came out, and soon enough, things got rowdy. He toasted the holiday with his friend and housemate, 44-year-old Roger Picor, along with their neighbor, 49-year-old Tim Blake. Gary was surrounded by good food and good company. But the men were united more by a mutual hate than friendship. As the evening wore on, Tim, Roger, Gary, and his girlfriend Kim indulged in what had become their nightly ritual, antagonizing their neighbor, 43-year-old Billy Woodward. By then, the feud between the Woodwards and their neighbors across the street had lasted 28 days. What started as a petty squabble had since spun out of control, with screaming matches and police sirens disturbing the once quiet street multiple times per day. Before I continue with the group psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Feuds between neighbors are shockingly common. According to one study, about 30% of people surveyed claimed they had argued with their neighbors about noise or parking issues. These arguments have a tendency to graduate to open hostility. However, police data suggests they don't often incite violence, which unfortunately made the conflict between Billy Woodward and his neighbors an unusual case. At the end of August, Every one of the neighbors had petitioned a local judge to grant them protective orders against one another. When the request was denied, a physical fight broke out in the court parking lot. Since then, things had only gotten worse. Billy Woodward watched the Labor Day barbecue from across the street via a surveillance camera he'd installed on the front of his house. He squinted at the laptop for hours on end, tracking the movements of the blurry shapes on the screen and growing more and more tense. Billy was a former soldier in the Gulf War who was diagnosed with PTSD after sustaining brain damage during his service. He was open about the fact that at times he had trouble controlling his emotions. In fact, 
he told the judge about it at the hearing, hoping it would convince authorities to step in and put an end to the feud. But it hadn't. Now he and his wife Barbara felt like prisoners in their own home. Every time they stepped outside, they worried about being harassed. They'd heard from other neighbors who weren't even involved in the arguments that they felt the same way. Everyone on the street was terrified thanks to Gary, Roger, and Tim's endless taunts and noise. On prior occasions, Billy's neighbors told him they had guns and were planning to use them against the Woodwards. They regularly dared Billy to step outside and fight them. In between these provocations, they insulted his wife, his mother and father, and his 12-year-old daughter. On the night of September 2nd, the gang threatened to burn the Woodwards' house down, So understandably, Billy was closer to the edge than ever before. He no longer saw himself as a squabbling neighbor. He was at war. As he scrutinized the surveillance footage, he reminded himself to remain calm and vigilant. Overseas, he'd done guard duty and this was no different. He kept all his attention laser-focused on his laptop. He later told the police, if you have no patience, you won't make a good soldier. But everyone's patience had its limits. Around midnight, Billy reached his. The shouted taunts from next door were still continuing sporadically, and the party showed no signs of slowing down. From his laptop, Billy saw Gary light something on fire in his front yard. The flame burned bright, even on the infrared camera. It turned out it was just a palm frond Gary was lighting for fun. But after a night of listening to his neighbors threaten to burn down his home, Billy panicked. In his stress-addled state, he was sure the flame came from some kind of Molotov cocktail. He leapt into action. Billy's heart pounded in his ears. This was it. The neighbors had been screaming about lighting his house on fire for hours. Now, the final battle was imminent. Billy's mind flashed to his wife and 12-year-old daughter asleep in bed. If his house burned down, they would all be in danger. He couldn't give his enemies the chance to attack. He decided the only way he stood a chance against so many people was to make the first move. And, he thought, it would have to be the only move that night. He would shock and awe his neighbors into submission. The feud would end that night, no matter what. Billy rushed to his bedroom. He dressed in camouflage, grabbed his handgun, and loaded it. With two 15-round magazines and one in the chamber, he had a total of 31 bullets to work with. He planned on using every last one. When there was a slight lull in the shouting outside, he snuck out of his door, hit the concrete, and army crawled across the street. He kept his breath even as he scuttled from shadow to shadow. Then he laid in wait, out of view of the neighbors. This was where his patience counted. He needed to maintain the element of surprise. He couldn't give them time to arm themselves or light any more Molotovs. 
he waited until the party started to wind down. The lights in the backyard went out. Billy grinned as Roger Picor came into view. He was wrestling with his 17-year-old son on Gary's front lawn. He was drunk, completely oblivious to the fact that Billy was only a few feet away from him. Billy watched the father and son tussle without losing his smile. In his opinion, Roger had been one of the main aggressors, always looking to stir the pot. He'd called Billy a plastic G.I. Joe and a tin soldier in the past. He'd openly questioned the soldier's manhood, but Billy was about to show him what he had been trained to do. When the lights dimmed, Billy jumped to his feet and aimed his pistol at Roger and his boy. Roger's son noticed first and reflexively jumped off his father's back. It was the opening Billy needed. He wasted no time, firing twice the moment he had a clear shot. Both were direct hits to Roger's torso. He watched as Roger collapsed and blood seeped into the lawn. Roger's son stood by, completely frozen with fear. He looked at Billy with wide eyes, hardly able to comprehend what had just happened. Billy almost didn't seem to notice the boy. His mind was on the mission. With his first objective complete, he moved on to his next target, 49-year-old Tim Blake. This time, he didn't have the element of surprise. Tim was in his driveway just next door to Gary and plainly saw what happened to Roger. He whipped around and booked it for his garage door, but Billy was too fast for him. He cornered Tim in the carport and fired until he ran out of bullets. Billy reloaded while Tim clung to consciousness. He could feel the life leaving him as blood soaked the concrete. A few of Billy's shots missed him and sank into the doorframe, but he was still hit 11 times in the chest, back, and legs. His wife, Carrie, ran to the door and peeked outside. She could see Tim lying motionless on the ground. She rushed to the phone to call the police, terrified that Billy would come in the house for her next. But he had other plans. He needed to be sure his objectives were complete. There was just one more name left on his hit list, his former friend, Gary Hembree. Billy thought back to all the times he'd tried to be a good neighbor to Gary, how all his efforts had been repaid with scorn and torment. He marched back across Gary's lawn with ice in his veins. On the way, he passed Roger Picor, who was still writhing in pain, face down on the grass. Billy didn't spare him a glance. Just then, Gary and his girlfriend Kim burst through their front door, They'd heard the shots from inside their home and ran to the driveway to see what had happened. As soon as he saw Roger lying on the ground in the yard, Gary knew immediately who was responsible. Unfortunately, he didn't have time to react. As Gary neared his car in the driveway, Billy shot him once dead center in the chest. Gary buckled to the ground. Kim screamed and ducked behind the car as the window shattered. Gary lay next to her, completely still. 
She tearfully tried to talk to him to see if he was okay. He didn't respond. Kim shook from head to toe. She could hear Billy's slow footsteps as he walked around the vehicle toward her. His boots crunched on the broken glass. Closer, closer. He stopped right in front of Kim. She screamed for help, certain Billy would kill her next. Instead, he unloaded more shots into Gary's body. Again and again, her boyfriend was riddled with bullets. She was afraid to move. All she could do was watch as her boyfriend was slaughtered in front of her eyes. Billy hardly seemed to notice Kim. He deliberately hadn't targeted any women. In his mind, he was a soldier, and only the men were enemy combatants. He later told police, you do not engage women and children on the battlefield. They are not the enemy. But his other neighbors certainly were. After killing Gary, he calmly marched back over to Roger Pecor, who was still twitching on the lawn, desperately clinging to life. Roger's son was helpless as he saw Billy flip his father's body over, press his gun to Roger's forehead, and fire. With that final bang, Billy's gun was empty. The street was silent for a moment, the living witnesses too terrified to scream. Tim Blake was still taking shallow breaths, but Billy decided that since he'd run out of bullets, he'd accomplished his mission. He walked back across the street as if he were simply out for a stroll. He went to his front yard, removed his camouflage jacket, then placed his pistol on the ground. He was triumphant. In his mind, he'd eliminated the threat to his family and gotten revenge on his tormentors. He had done what soldiers were supposed to do. After the brief silence, some of the other residents of Smith Street felt safe enough to peek out of their homes. One of Billy's friends, Scott Crow, came out expecting to find Billy and possibly his entire family shot dead. He'd assumed the gunshots came from Gary Hembry or Roger Pecor, considering the threats they'd been making all night. He was shocked to find Billy perfectly fine, standing on his lawn. In fact, Billy was better than fine. Another neighbor called out to him from down the road, asking if he was okay. Billy responded cheerily. He yelled gleefully, got him all. Coming up, Billy Woodward celebrates a victory in battle, realizing too late that he's lost the war. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. Just after midnight on September 3, 2012, 43-year-old Billy Woodward shot his neighbors Roger Picor, Tim Blake, and Gary Hembry. When he'd exhausted every one of his 31 bullets, Billy put the gun on the ground, got down on his knees, and put his hands on the back of his head. He waited like that until the authorities arrived. Billy's wife, Barbara, awoke to the sounds of screaming and sirens. Her husband's side of the bed was empty. She feared the worst as she rushed to the door to see what was going on. When she saw Billy being put in handcuffs, her mouth fell open. She was relieved to see he was okay, but she had no idea that the nightmare was only beginning. Billy cooperated as he was taken into custody and dragged into the fluorescent light of the interrogation room. He didn't see a reason to fight anymore. When the officer asked, he immediately waived his Miranda rights. He was more than ready to talk, desperate for someone to finally listen. He started by warning the interrogator that he was a combat veteran who'd suffered from brain damage. He said he would need four different types of medication the following morning and was concerned about potentially rambling or, quote, wigging out during his confession. He spoke in a deliberate measured tone that was better suited for a military debrief than a homicide interrogation. It was clear that was how he saw the murders, as a military operation designed to put an end to a war. After introducing himself as a veteran, Billy methodically described the murders step by step as best as he could remember. He declared that the war was finally over. He protected his family. He claimed he'd been pushed to the brink by his neighbors, encouraging his interrogator to pull past police reports documenting their long-running feud. The evidence was all there. Hard proof that all of them had warned this violence was coming. At one point, as he recalled being harassed by his victims, Billy lost control and slammed his head into the stone wall of the interrogation room. He had to be stopped by an officer from hurting himself. It was the one and only time he lost his composure. Overall, he sounded slightly detached from the deaths, as if his mind was still caught up in the fog of war. But it was clear that Billy believed what he'd done was just. He claimed it was all to protect his family. He saw himself as a disciplined warrior who'd followed the rules of engagement, not as a cold-blooded killer. When his interrogator asked if he believed he should go to jail for what he did, Billy thought for a moment before saying, no. He insisted that he'd exhausted every option before resorting to violence. He'd called the police, he'd begged a judge for help, but again and again, he'd been denied. 
he put special emphasis on the graphic threats his neighbors had made against his 12-year-old daughter. According to him, weeks prior, Carrie Blake claimed she would hire a man to rape his daughter. Those comments, more than any other, got under Billy's skin. He said he nearly lost his head in that moment. He described wanting to disembowel Carrie and, quote, eat her guts then and there. He identified Carrie Blake and Roger Pecor as the main instigators. But even when they said unforgivable things about him and his family, he exercised restraint. He wanted the officer to see him as a man pushed too far by bullies. There was no question in his mind that by murdering his neighbors, he'd prevented them from hurting his wife and daughter. He was soon surprised to find his arguments didn't necessarily persuade the authorities. Billy was processed and jailed. In his mugshot, he wore a distant smile. Clearly, the gravity of his situation hadn't yet set in. Soon, he would have to meet with lawyers and start a different kind of war to keep himself out of jail. Meanwhile, Tim Blake was fighting for his life. Despite being shot 11 times, out of the three victims, he was the only one still found alive at the scene. He was rushed to the hospital in critical condition. In the early hours of the morning, doctors performed extensive surgery. It was a risky operation. Tim had lost a lot of blood and had wounds all over his body. Surgeons labored for hours to remove all the bullets they could, though they couldn't get them all. All his wife Carrie could do was wait and pray. She didn't get any sleep that night and instead sat by the phone, hoping her husband was still alive. She was caught in the ultimate nightmare. Her mind jockeyed between the brutal violence she'd been forced to witness and the fate of her husband. There were no happy thoughts to keep her distracted. Everywhere she turned, she saw evidence of the tragedy. There were bullet holes in the doorframe. Her driveway was soaked with blood. Tim's side of the bed was cold and vacant. There was no getting her mind off the events of that night. They would follow her for the rest of her life. When the phone rang sometime before dawn, Carrie nearly hyperventilated. This was it, the moment of truth. When she answered, she heard the voice of the hospital chaplain on the other end and assumed the worst. For a second, she cracked. Carrie thought for sure he was going to tell her that her husband was dead. An unexpected wave of relief passed over her when she realized the chaplain wasn't an angel of death. He'd called to deliver news of a real-life miracle. Her husband was stable. He was expected to recover. Carrie's terrified sobs became tears of joy. Sometime later, Tim woke up in the hospital. He was still foggy when employees explained that Roger and Gary hadn't made it. He'd somehow been pulled back from the brink of death. Over the next two years, Tim and his wife slowly rebuilt their lives. Billy sat in jail, waiting for his day in court. In 2015, the Blakes were called to testify at a special court hearing against Billy Woodward. 
Billy's feelings hadn't changed much since that Labor Day night. Though he now faced two charges of murder and one for attempted murder, he maintained that he believed his life was in direct danger. He acknowledged that he'd killed Gary Hembry and Roger Pacor, but sought immunity from prosecution by citing the controversial Stand Your Ground law. The statute grants people in Florida the right to respond to an attack with deadly force if he or she reasonably believes it is necessary to do so to prevent death or great bodily harm. The key to the Stand Your Ground law lies in the fact that it requires a defendant to be reacting to an attack. Billy and his defense team had to show that any reasonable person would have taken the same action that he did to protect their family. That was why the immunity hearing was called to order. If Billy could convince a judge that he was protected by the stand your ground provision, then he could avoid a formal trial with a jury. In court, Billy's description of the night in question differed slightly from the version he told authorities after the shooting. Originally, he hadn't mentioned an imminent threat or that he believed his neighbors were arming themselves to attack his family. During the immunity hearing, however, Billy claimed that he'd actually believed that Gary Hembry and Roger Pacor were firing guns that night. On the surveillance video recorded at 10.54 p.m. on September 2nd, four distinct bangs can be heard from across the street. Billy Woodward swore they were gunshots. He claimed that thanks to his service in the Army, he could tell the sounds came from a 22 caliber automatic weapon. But not everyone agreed with his assessment. It was Labor Day. Fireworks were going off all over the neighborhood. Tim Blake dismissed the gunshot claims as ridiculous in his testimony. None of the three victims legally owned a gun, and law enforcement didn't find any weapons other than Billy's pistol during their investigation. But Billy's father, a former police officer, believed the scene had been tampered with. He claimed that the victims were armed at the time of the attack. Whether or not that was true, the three men had certainly claimed to have guns and had threatened to use them against Billy on multiple occasions. Back in court, Billy insisted his life was in danger that night. The defense played footage captured at 12.02 a.m. on September 3rd. The video showed Gary Hembry lighting that palm frond on fire just minutes before Billy Woodward made his move. Billy stuck to his story that he believed the flaming leaf was a Molotov cocktail and that the fire was what prompted him to grab his gun. He claimed that he didn't bother calling the authorities because he didn't believe they would act fast enough. After almost a month of police failing to take any meaningful action on Smith Street, he'd lost his faith in the system. From there, Billy launched into a description of the murders, he told the judge that war had been declared on his family and he had no choice but to take to the battlefield. He claimed that when he shot Roger Pacor, Roger was holding an aluminum baseball bat. As evidence, he again cited footage from his camera taken that night. While the shooting can't actually be seen on video, it can be heard. After the gunshots, 
The camera picked up a distant clanking sound, which Billy said came from an aluminum bat falling to the ground. Police never found any bat that night, and Tim Blake denied that he and the other victims were armed. Even so, Billy was adamant in court that Roger had a bat. He also said that he believed Gary Hembry was pointing a gun at him when Gary ran out of his house to investigate the gunshots. In reality, he was simply holding a coffee mug, but Billy swore he thought it was a gun at the time. Billy had more than just his own word. To justify his claims, he had some of his other neighbors testify at the hearing. They testified that, from their point of view, Gary Hembry, Roger Pecor, and Tim Blake had made living in the neighborhood a nightmare. One of the neighbors, Larry Malden, told Dateline he thought Billy should get off scot-free. He claimed that Billy showed restraint by not acting sooner. Martha Malden told the court that she would have done the same thing Billy did. The Woodward's next-door neighbors, Lydia and Scott Crow, also agreed. They called the situation adult bullying. Though they were largely uninvolved in the conflict, they claimed they were targeted by Carrie Blake just for associating with Billy and Barbara. Scott said she pointed to their home on one occasion, indicating she would take them out along with the Woodward's. He told the court that the gang had targeted them several times for no apparent reason and threatened violence against himself and his wife. It was clear that Billy Woodward and his family had been harassed, but whether the threats constituted imminent danger was another matter. And Billy's close friends and neighbors may have had biased opinions about the severity of the situation. Though individuals might try to evaluate a complex moral situation neutrally, the waters get muddy when friends and family are involved. One study published in Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin found that people are apt to protect their loved ones even in clear-cut cases of crime. Aaron Weidman, a co-author of the paper, told Science Daily, we were really taken aback to see that most people predict that they will protect those close to them, even in the face of heinous moral infractions. Researchers discovered that many participants were willing to break the law or lie to police if their friends or relatives committed a crime. When the guilty culprit was a stranger rather than a loved one, however, the same people definitely wanted the person responsible to be punished. It's difficult to know what life on Smith Street was really like in the lead up to the shooting. It had been weeks of he said, she said, but when the formal arguments in the courtroom were over, the judge denied the defense's claim. He didn't believe Billy had acted in self-defense. According to him, the evidence suggested that he'd instead acted before any reasonable imminent threat presented itself. Firing 31 bullets didn't exactly help the case either. In the judge's opinion, the standard ground statute didn't apply. It was a bitter defeat for Billy, but the fight wasn't over yet. He still had a chance to argue his innocence in a formal trial. He hoped a jury of his peers would be more sympathetic than the judge. Up next, 
Judgment for Billy Woodward. Now, back to the story. After five years in jail, waiting for his day in court, 49-year-old Billy Woodward was finally set to go to trial in 2018. After failing to mount a defense using the Stand Your Ground law, Billy was charged for the murder of Roger Picor and Gary Hembry, as well as the attempted murder of another neighbor, Tim Blake. Billy hoped that the average juror would be more sympathetic than the judge. Back on Smith Street, where the shooting took place, he still had plenty of support. Front lawns all over the road were adorned with bright yellow signs that read, We support Billy Woodward. But winning over friends and neighbors who lived through the shooting was different than convincing a jury. One paper, published in the journal Current Directions in Psychological Science, asserted that contrary to the claims of skeptics, jurors tend to do a good job of neutrally evaluating the evidence at hand. Though they typically don't have any formal training in the law, the researchers wrote, Post-trial interviews show that jurors tend to analyze expert evidence in a fairly rational and methodical way. Others argue to the contrary, claiming that juries can be swayed by subconscious biases. In the book, The Psychology of Juries, Dr. Jennifer Hunt states that the race, ethnicity, and cultural background of those involved in a criminal trial often affect verdicts. She specifically cited cases involving the Stand Your Ground law to support her case. She wrote, In experimental research, there is consistent support for the similarity leniency effect, in which mock jurors render more favorable judgments for same-race defendants, or conversely, make harsher judgments about other race defendants. Conflicting points of view can make it difficult to predict how any prospective jury might react to certain arguments. As the date for his trial finally approached in 2018, the prosecution might have expected Billy Woodward to be nervous. But when the day came, he entered the courtroom with a grim determination. He believed his story stood on its own merits. He looked over and saw his wife, Barbara, and his daughter sitting nearby. They were the reason he'd grabbed his gun that night. He'd do anything to protect his family. Barbara had stood by him every step of the way. She'd slept through the shooting that night, but absolutely believed in her husband's version of events. She didn't know him to be the kind of man who would attack anyone purely out of anger. She saw him as a hero, certain that her life was in danger that night. She couldn't understand how anyone could punish Billy for standing up for her. She was just as determined to fight as he was. During the proceedings, Billy's defense team stuck to their script. They played video after video, documenting the extensive taunts and threats aimed at the Woodwards from across the street. They displayed a blown-up image of a picture Roger Picor had posted on Facebook, where he appeared to be posing with an automatic rifle. In their opinion, this backed up Billy's claims that he believed his neighbors were armed and dangerous. Then, at last, they rolled the footage from the night of the attack. Though not much can be seen from the grainy camera, it did show Billy down low, crawling across his driveway. 
The jury watched as his silhouette darted through the shadows, finally making its way onto Gary Hembry's front lawn. From there, only the sounds of death could be heard. By the time the closing arguments were over, the jury faced a complicated choice. The defense wanted them to sympathize with the man who struggled with mental illness and had been pushed to his limits by harassment and bullying. The prosecution, on the other hand, insisted that Billy Woodward had to pay the price for killing two people. They argued there was no evidence that Billy faced an imminent threat for his life. On the contrary, they claimed he made a coldly rational calculation to launch a preemptive strike. It would have been a difficult decision for almost anyone, but in the end, the jury rejected Billy Woodward's defense. He was found guilty on all three charges. When the verdict was read, Billy kept his face blank. He sat quiet and still. Perhaps the only evidence of how he felt deep inside could be seen in his eyes, which blinked rapidly, never focusing on one point for more than a second at a time. He was sentenced to two counts of life in prison for the murders of Roger Pacor and Gary Hembry to be served concurrently. He was given an additional 25 years for the attempted murder of Tim Blake. The decision was exactly what Tim had asked for during the trial. He said to the court, Billy made a permanent decision on a temporary emotion. Now he's got the rest of his life to pay for it. Now I'm done. I'm going fishing. It's hard to know what Billy was thinking as he was led out of the courtroom, as his face remained impassive. But his defense team hadn't given up. They filed for appeals as soon as possible the following week. Billy Woodward currently resides in a Florida prison, but his family holds out hope that he will be released. None of them have wavered in their belief that Billy did what he had to do in order to protect them. To this day, opinions on the case are sharply divided. Billy's neighbors knew about his struggles with PTSD and anxiety and provoked him anyway. But survivors of the shooting admit that both sides willfully escalated the conflict. Remember, this all started with some missing candy and a stolen birthday cake. There are a lot of what ifs to think about. What if the judge had issued restraining orders? What if the police had intervened in a more serious way? What if the Woodwards had moved to their new home sooner? What if one of the other men in the feud had resorted to violence instead of Billy? We'll never know. While squabbles between neighbors can appear petty from the outside, they involve real emotions and can lead to lifelong consequences. In the future, one can only hope that situations like theirs will be taken more seriously. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with another episode. You can find all episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. 
Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Trent Williamson. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Terrell Wells, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, fact-checking by Haley Milligan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. (laughs) ¶¶